Hey, I'm Steph, and this is Not Today. Hello, friends. Here we are, back from Dublin. I'm officially back in Los Angeles. I had a fantastic trip. Oh my god, I needed that so bad. It was really nice. I was with my best friend. We just ran around Dublin and we did a bunch of fun stuff. I feel like I learned so much, but also we like chilled out a lot. And that also feels like a lie because I did like 15,000 steps a day. (laughs) Honestly, it was just a lot of fun. I had a really good time, so I can't complain. We did a brewery tour, a whiskey tour. My ghost tour did get canceled, although I am kind of convinced that I caught a ghost on camera. If you want to see it, it's on my Instagram. So so that's kind of fun. It very well might be a reflection or whatever in the mirror, but to me in my heart, it feels like a ghost. And we were in a castle that definitely has ghosts in it. So I'm going to tell myself it's a ghost because... In my spooky little heart, it is the ghost of someone who once resided in the castle of Kilkenny or the Kilkenny Castle in Ireland. To those of you who know Ireland, you might know Kilkenny. I don't know. I went there. It was cool. It was fun. But now that I'm back, it's reality time once again, which is never fun. But you know, here we are back into work. And on top of that, I haven't mentioned this yet, but Alex and I are preparing for a cross-country move. So we are very busy. We are in the midst of selling all of our furniture because shipping our one-bedroom furniture would have been a ridiculous cost in what it actually is worth. So we're selling everything, which is so fun for all of you who have not done that. Um, So that's what I'm dealing with right now. But anyway, that's a very jumbled recap of my week. Also... At the time that this episode comes out, our bonus episode number 16 has been decided by our patrons and will come out next Tuesday. So our bonus episode that I will be telling over on Patreon will be the story of John Thompson. And a little description of that story is, while working alone on his parents' North Dakota farm one January morning in 1992, 18-year-old John Thompson became entangled in a piece of machinery, and in an instant, both arms were severed. And that episode comes out next Tuesday. Our patrons get to vote on stories they want to hear every single month. So if you want to join in on that fun and get to hear stories just like that one, head over to Patreon at patreon.com slash nottodaypodcast. But that being said, I've got a huge story for you today. So big, I had to break it up into two parts. And that is the story of Lorena and John Wayne Bobbitt. When this story was unfolding in the early 90s, it was international news. And once we get started, I think you'll see why. I did want to give a quick trigger warning. This story does contain discussion of domestic abuse and sexual assault. But with that being said, let's get started. Our story begins on June 23rd, 1993, in Manassas, Virginia. It was 5.06 a.m. The Manassas City Police Department received a pretty nonchalant call requesting some officers to report to Prince William Hospital that said, quote, Hi, this guy walked into Prince William Hospital. He was, uh, well, he was assaulted by his wife. It might, uh, y'all need to send somebody over here. Two officers were sent down to respond to the call. 
They weren't sure what happened or even what the man's name was since the man had been in so much pain and hadn't been able to give it. At the time of the call, the officers didn't think too much of it since they didn't have too much information. However, when the Manassas City police officers arrived at the hospital, they realized that they were about to have something as far from a routine night as they possibly could have. They were informed that the man they were responding to had his penis cut off by his wife. This man was John Wayne Bobbitt, and his wife was Lorena Bobbitt. Not only had John had his penis cut off by his wife, but the severed penis was missing. And Lorena was also not with him. Once they had been informed, dispatcher Michelle Bailey began calling for more officers. However, she didn't want to say what had really happened over the radio, because she knew the media would pick up on it really quickly if she had. I guess because anyone had access to police scanners. So she could only really say, requesting more officers to the ER since a man had lost part of his body. She couldn't be more specific than that. Officer John Tillman was given the task of coming by the hospital, grabbing a key to this couple's apartment, and then going there to search for the severed penis. Because time was of the utmost importance if they wanted a chance at reattaching it. But at the time he was given the task, Officer John Tillman didn't know what body part or quote-unquote appendage he was looking for. The officers didn't have cell phones at the time because this was the early 90s, so every bit of communication was happening over their radios, and they didn't want to say the word penis. So he went to this apartment searching for a severed body part, not knowing what severed body part he was looking for. That morning, crime scene tech Cindy Leo was also told to report to the Maplewood Drive apartment to search for the penis, so she was able to tell John Tillman what they were looking for. However, she was apparently told by her sergeant he believed the wife had swallowed the penis. Isn't that absolutely insane? First off, that John Tillman didn't know what he was looking for. He just knew it was a severed body part. And then also that they said that she swallowed it. I mean, come on. I'm going to talk more about that later. But Jesus, I mean, guys. Okay. So the first thing she noticed on the scene was blood droplets on the sidewalk that went up the stairs to apartment number five. They then went through the living room and into the bedroom on the left-hand side. John Tillman saw a bloody butt imprint on the bed, with blood spatter leading off of it as if he had swung his legs over the side of the bed, and then blood spatter in the shape of basically a V. So he, it looked like he was sitting on the edge of the bed, and it was just kind of spurting out of him. The crime scene techs were informed that John had been extremely intoxicated, which is why it took him a while to move after his penis had been cut off and he actually hadn't even felt it right away. He was asleep when she did it. I'm just picturing those dreams where you are falling and then wake up when you hit the ground, but 10 times worse. <laughs> I'm sorry, this is awful, but I have very little sympathy for this man. We'll get into exactly why in a little while. This is obviously an awful experience, but... <sighs> anyway, let's just keep going. <laughs> 
When John Bobbitt had woken up and discovered his penis had been cut off, he stumbled into the living room where his friend Bobby was asleep on the couch. He kicked Bobby, who didn't realize what was happening, because of course Bobby was very drunk as well. And so Bobby got up and he brushed his teeth before the two of them went to the hospital. That's how drunk the two of them were. His friend just had his penis cut off and was bleeding profusely in front of him, and he thought, it's time to brush my teeth before we go anywhere. So that paints a picture as to the chaos that was happening in that apartment at that moment. So these officers began searching the kitchen for the knife the wife had used and, of course, the penis. They searched the sink, the garbage disposal, the freezer, the dishwasher, everywhere. And they unfortunately didn't find the penis or the knife, but they did find some pamphlets regarding spousal abuse and rape. After Lorena Bobbitt had cut off her husband's penis, she had driven herself to her boss and friend, Jana Bizzuti's home, and began frantically banging on the door. After a while, Jana's husband came to the door and saw Lorena covered in blood, asking if Jana was home. When Lorena finally got to speak to her friend, she told her that she had just cut off her husband's penis. This was obviously a very huge shock, And not long after that, they ended up calling 911 to report her husband's repeated sexual abuse toward her. The officers at the time said they could get to that shortly, but at the moment, they needed her to tell them what she had done with his penis, which is when the officer said Lorena was sent right back to that moment. Initially, she told them just to look around, But he told her they had already been to her apartment and couldn't find it, so she had to tell them where it was. Which is when she told them that she had been tossing things out the window of her car. She remembered seeing a 7-Eleven. It was at the intersection of Polk Road and Old Centerville Road. She tossed it out of her left driver's side window when she arrived at the stop sign. She was driving when she threw it with her left arm over the roof of her car, where it landed in a tall grassy area that had about knee to thigh high grass. So, so she cut off her husband's penis. She took it with her and continued to drive her car with it, but then tossed it out the window in front of a 7-Eleven into a field that had very tall grass. So now the officers have to search this field for John Wayne Bobbitt's severed appendage. Once they had the confirmation that she didn't swallow it, which, okay, in my mind, only a man would come up with such a ridiculous thought that she would swallow the severed penis. Because you really think a woman who just cut off her husband's penis is going to swallow it? You think she wants that thing in her mouth? She just mutilated it. She hates it. Also, it's bloody and gross. But of course, they'd be like, she's a mad woman. Of course, she ate it. (laughs) I don't, that's ridiculous to me. What a stupid thought. Anyway, now that they knew she didn't do that, they sent every officer to this grassy field to search for it. And the sergeant ended up finding it because he actually stepped on it. He apparently refused to touch it because he's religious, so he stood where he was and pointed down into the grass until someone else came and picked it up. They then had to ceremoniously carry it into the 7-Eleven, where they at least knew to put it on ice, in, of all things, a hot dog bag. 
The fact that the sergeant didn't touch it is hysterical to me. (laughs) Apparently touching a severed penis makes you gay. (laughs) Happy pride, everyone. (laughs) No homo. (laughs) I found that very funny. Anyway, so... Lorena told police she had disposed of the knife in the garbage can outside of the nail salon she worked at in the county over. She had driven there before going to Jana's home and thrown it into the garbage can outside. So police had to get there before the garbage people did to empty the trash. And it was garbage day, so they did not have a lot of time. But they did end up retrieving the bloody knife from the trash can before the garbage was collected. Meanwhile, now that they had the severed penis, John was going into surgery. This surgery was going to be long and hard. (laughs) I'm so sorry, I could not resist, but it is true. It took nine and a half hours to complete. And the success of the operation was very questionable. Dr. David Berman, who was a microsurgeon at the time, had never reattached a penis before, so they were all just kind of hoping for the best. Dr. Berman had to reattach the arteries under a microscope, and at the same time, Dr. Sen had to make sure the plumbing worked okay. The only time they were a bit tense was when they had to take the tourniquet off the base of the penis to see if the blood flow returned, but it did. Even though the initial surgery seemed to be successful, it was uncertain how the recovery would go. He would have a very long recovery ahead of him. When John first came into the hospital with this injury, the staff was freaking out. They had never seen anything like this. The cut was very clean, surgical almost, right above his testicles, and he had lost about a third of his blood. Nurses later testified they thought when he came in with a bloody stump where his penis used to be, damn, what did he do to deserve that? And that's how a lot of women reacted to this situation. It was a very interesting split. Men felt like this was the worst possible thing that could happen to a man, even worse than death. And the person who did this was a monster. And a lot of women felt he must have done something really terrible to get that kind of reaction out of his wife. But anyway, back to the doctors. Before they found the penis in the grass, the doctors thought the best case scenario was to do a perineal urethrostomy forgive me if I'm saying that wrong, which would basically repair what he had left and make it so John would pee sitting down for the rest of his life. Minus, you know, the rest of his penis. Because if they couldn't find his penis, you can't reattach what you don't have. But after they found it, they of course did their best to reattach it. But even with the surgery going well, there was no guarantee John would regain normal function. The doctor who reattached his penis was interviewed a bunch. He was a microsurgeon, but after John Wayne Bobbitt, he became a micro-celebrity. He told the press he was optimistic John would regain all normal function, but they couldn't be sure for two whole years, and it was possible he would become a quote-unquote sexual cripple, in his words. At the same time John was in surgery, Lorena Bobbitt was on the other side of the same hospital getting a rape kit performed, because she had reported that her husband had raped her on multiple occasions. In fact, the more she had said no to him, the more he did it. And this was throughout their entire relationship, not just that night. By the next morning, the story had hit the papers. 
Carlos Sanchez, a journalist for the Washington Post, had called into the police agencies in the Prince William County area, as he did every morning, which is when he caught wind of the story and came down to the Manassas County Courthouse, where he bumped into Lorena Bobbitt, who told him, quote, he raped me, he raped me. And that's what was initially published in the paper. Quote, scorned woman mutilated her husband after he raped her. People were shocked and definitely had mixed feelings about it. But also, comedians ran with the story. It was such an unbelievable tale. It was everywhere. SNL did sketches on it, comedians like Whoopi Goldberg and Robin Williams included it in their sets, and so many more. Talk show hosts were bringing it up. It was, of course, all over the news. It was everywhere in the media. In interviews he did, John had said that Lorena was upset with him because he was in the process of trying to divorce her. So in many cases, Lorena was villainized. She was a scorned woman who snapped and cut her husband's penis in a jealous rage. There were so many rumors. Usually, feelings were divided between men and women. Men were furious at the idea. Todd Biro and Brett Biro, John Wayne's brothers, were interviewed on TV and said they actually went out looking for Lorena when they heard what happened and would have killed her if they could have found her that night. They said she did something worse than kill their brother, and they wanted to make her pay. And the men in the audience loved when they said that, and they were clapping very loudly for that one. But when women were asked how they felt about the whole thing, many of them thought it was great. She was doing something about her situation. And a lot of them were like, yeah, it makes sense. And these are obviously extreme reactions. But for women at the time, domestic violence was not taken seriously at all. Kim Gandy, president and CEO of the National Network to End Domestic Violence, said, quote, It was a real struggle to get anyone to view this as a domestic violence case back then. From the perspective of advocates who were fighting domestic violence, it was clear to us that it was a domestic violence case, and that was a large part of what had gone on, and the reaction to it. But it was not widely seen as a domestic violence case, because in great part, people only knew what they heard in the media and what they saw on television. The media was almost singularly interested in the injury to John Bobbitt. In the U.S. at the time, the large majority of domestic violence cases were not treated with the level of severity or urgency they needed. Many cops, when called to homes, would at most just separate a couple and tell them to walk it off. There wasn't training or really laws in place to protect against domestic violence. The U.S. passed a law to prevent cruelty to animals before they created its first battered women's shelter. There were no adequate resources at the time, women weren't believed when they spoke out against their abusers, and many women were used to nothing happening. Lorena Bobbitt was at the mercy of the way that the media outlets chose to tell her story, and most of the reporters were men back then. The male reporters had a particular perspective on what the real story was, and if the reporters were women, then their editors were men. So it was really hard for activists and advocates to support Lorena and get her story out there. Eventually, the story turned into international news, which is when Lorena turned to Jana. Jana was her first boss. 
Lorena had initially been a nanny for Jana, but had noticed how well off she was. She had a nice car, a nice house in a good neighborhood, she owned multiple nail salons, she was always busy, and Lorena wanted to be like that. She really looked up to Jana, so she asked if she could work in one of her salons. And Jana agreed to train her as a manicurist, and she began working in her new nail salon in Centerville. And it was Jana who hired Lorena a defense attorney, James Lowe, and a media representative from Hollywood, Alan Hogue. She hired Alan because everyone and their mother was trying to contact Lorena for an interview, so he was basically just a buffer. Anyone who wanted to talk to Lorena went through him. And he knew what he was doing with that, so that was really great for her. Jana hiring a media representative for Lorena was also a double-edged sword a little bit because most newspapers had a practice that if you were a victim of a sex crime, you were never identified by name. So up until that point, Lorena's name had never been used in the papers. But once they caught wind that she had a media rep, the Washington Post felt like she was expecting to be in the news. And that's when they began using her and John's names. And that's when things got really bad for Lorena. She started getting death threats, and that was the end of all peace. And because she was kind of backed into a corner to get her side of the story out there, she gave her first interview to Vanity Fair. This Vanity Fair interview was very interesting, because it was definitely a good opportunity to get her story out before the trial, but there was also kind of a weird photo shoot along with it. And it was definitely a bigger deal in the news, because Lorena was young and hot. She was gorgeous, and John Wayne Bobbitt was also handsome. They were a good-looking couple, and because of that, this story was definitely bigger than it would have been if they were ugly. I mean, that's just kind of how things work. Like, if you're hot, people care more, which is messed up, but it's just the world we live in. I don't like it, but it is what it is. One of the reporters said if Lorena and John had been a less attractive couple, it would have been much less of a thing. Vanity Fair took glamour shots of Lorena in this cute Mickey Mouse top, and she was also shot in this white one-piece bathing suit in the pool and her hair was wet and like slicked back and she looked all like innocent but also like sexy like she was she was giving model I don't know if she had ever had photos taken like that before but she was a natural like she is stunning but it was also definitely odd for what the purpose of the interview was like these photos were stunning and she was in a bathing suit and then she was like yeah I was abused like a little weird but also at the same time, I'm like, slay? We love a confident, sexy queen. You know? I don't know. It was just an interesting choice, I thought. After that interview, Lorena's next step was her arraignment. And that was two months after the incident. She was charged with the crime of malicious wounding. Detective Peter Wentz read from a statement that she had given the night of the incident. She gave this statement at the hospital while she was still in shock and as she says, did not understand what was going on. She just knew she was in trouble. But looking back on it, she definitely should have gotten an attorney. Because this statement hurt her case. She said, quote, I was angry already. Then I turned my back, and I, the first thing I saw was the knife. Then I said, I asked him if he was satisfied with what he did. And he just, half asleep or something, he always have orgasm, and he doesn't wait for me to have an orgasm. 
He's selfish. I don't think it's fair. So I pulled back the shirt, or the sheets, then I did it. Which made it seem like because she didn't orgasm, she got frustrated and cut off his penis. But there was also the problem of the language barrier and the fact that she was hysterical at the time that she gave this statement. John Bobbitt said he was also in the process of divorcing Lorena, and John was allegedly sleeping around with one or some of their neighbors, which was, of course, another motive. So all of those things definitely did not look good for Lorena. But because Lorena had accused John Bobbitt of raping and abusing her, he had also been charged with marital sexual assault, but he was released on a $5,000 bond. Paul Ebert, the prosecutor in the case, didn't want to charge John at first, but he was met by a ton of backlash from women's groups who supported Lorena, which, yeah, I would be pissed as well, so good on them for that. I don't know that Paul Ebert didn't believe her, but successfully convicting spousal rape was very difficult. It carried a maximum sentence of life. In the state of Virginia at the time, you had to be separated from your spouse at the time of the crime, and you also had to cause permanent or significant damage or physical bodily damage, which was a big problem because it was going to be damn near impossible to prove. So because of that, they decided against charging John with that and charged him with malicious sexual assault, which carried a lesser of 20 years instead of life in prison. John Wayne Bobbitt hired Greg Murphy to be his defense attorney. At first, he apparently didn't want to take on the case, but he said after meeting with John, he decided he would. When they met, John allegedly had nail marks on his face from weeks prior. And since he was not making much money at the time, if any at all, he was the dependent one in the relationship. Throughout their relationship, John almost never had a job, or if he did have one, he lost it very quickly. Lorena was the breadwinner. They also had psych tests done on John, and according to Greg Murphy, it determined he wasn't great at telling lies since he, quote, doesn't do the complexity required to sell a lie. Okay. So one of the facts that sold him most was... The police had been called three or four times in their relationship. Three of those times, John had called, and the fourth time, Lorena called. However, her mother was there. She had told the police her daughter was the cause of the disturbance. This is according to Greg Murphy. Keep that in mind. We're going to talk more about Lorena's account of things later on, so... I don't know that I necessarily believe that, but the problem was John and Lorena's account of the evening and their relationship in general was extremely different. What a shock. Lorena said he abused her physically and sexually constantly. According to John, that was completely untrue. Lorena had said the night of the incident, he had raped her, which prompted the attack. However, he said he couldn't recall if they had sex. And to most people, the problem wasn't if they had sex or not, since they were a married couple. The issue was if she was assaulted, but that would be incredibly difficult to prove. Before we get into that, let's talk a bit about who John Wayne Bobbitt and Lorena Bobbitt are, and their history, because we haven't really done that yet. 
John Wayne Bobbitt was born in 1967 in Niagara Falls, New York. Growing up, he watched his mother go through an abusive relationship with his father. However, his father left when he was very young, and he was left with his mother and two brothers. At the age of three, he was taken away from his mother, and he and his two brothers were sent to live with his aunt and uncle. They had a big family and went to church on Sundays. However, according to him, his uncle would molest some of the kids, including himself. Growing up, he always wanted to be the strongest and the fastest. He played a lot of sports, and when he was a young adult, he enlisted in the Marines. Now, John's history is, of course, tragic. There's no doubt about it. It does make you wonder, did what he went through play a part in who he became? It's very possible and would make a lot of sense. I mean, it doesn't excuse the things that he allegedly did, but it would make sense. I mean, there is a reason why so many of these true crime cases include a really messed up childhood. The cycle of abuse is very real. So there is that. But also... There are a lot of people who go through really terrible things and they don't turn out to be awful people. So it's definitely not an excuse. But we can also sit here and say that we feel bad for child John because no child should have to go through anything like that. Lorena was born in 1969 in Ecuador, but moved to Venezuela when she was seven years old. She was raised in a Catholic household. Her family was hardworking, although they didn't have much money. She visited the U.S. for the first time when she was 16 years old and immediately fell in love with it. By the time she was 18, she applied for a student visa and moved to the U.S. and lived with the Castro family, who were family friends in Virginia. She didn't speak any English, but took English as a second language and would watch soap operas and game shows on TV to learn. Lorena met John when she was 19 years old at a marine ball, and it was love at first sight. She thought he was handsome, and he immediately started flirting with her and asked her to dance. After that night, the two started dating. She had never dated anyone else before. She was smitten. Lorena's family was very strict. However, she was allowed to date John with a chaperone. They would go out for pizza or ice cream together. It was all very innocent, but her cousins, who were the chaperones, didn't like him. They noticed that every time they went out on these dates, John just so happened to forget his wallet every single time. So Lorena paid for just about everything, but she didn't care. She was in love. They dated for 10 months before he asked her to marry him with a ring he found at the pool, and the two were married in 1989. Her parents were definitely happy because she had married an American, but Allegedly, within the first month of their marriage, things had started to change. John couldn't keep a job, he started yelling at her, putting her down, and things even started getting physical. They had bought a small home, but their only steady income was from Lorena. Lorena worked three jobs, but even with that, she couldn't keep up. Their house was foreclosed, their bills were past due, which is when she started stealing from her job at Nordstrom. She didn't want to, but she felt like she had to. She also stole dresses from Nordstrom because John had begun telling her that she was ugly, so she wanted to look nice for him. She dealt with all of this on her own since her family was in Venezuela and she didn't want to worry them. She wanted to work everything out. According to Lorena, the first time John hit her, they were on the way back from a bar. John had been a big drinker, and on this night, John had been very drunk and was driving them home. 
He had been going around 90 miles per hour, and she was scared and told him to slow down and grab the wheel, but he allegedly punched her in the chest. His brother was in the back seat, and according to Lorena, he was nodding in approval at John's behavior. When they got home, he continued to be violent and aggressive. When police arrived, John answered the door and was like a completely different person. He was calm and cooperative. Lorena ended up leaving that night and sleeping in her car in the parking lot of her job. She was completely at a loss for what to do. She had never seen her father treat her mother like that. She didn't tell anyone because she was embarrassed and because she was hoping it would be the last time. Unfortunately for Lorena, that was only the beginning. We'll talk more about their relationship later. Lorena's attorneys were able to make it so John's trial would be first. Which was good, because they'd be able to see the outcome of the trial and see how to better defend Lorena when her trial came. Very shortly before John's trial, 2020 wanted to do a story on it, and John's attorney asked them to please hold off until after his trial, but they refused. Lorena told her side of the story, however, John's attorney wouldn't let him. It was very big news. Reporters from all over the country and all over the world came to cover the trial. People wondered why they didn't move the trial out of Manassas, but at that point, people from all over the world knew about it, so it felt like they had nowhere else to go. It was a madhouse. Local people started making souvenirs to sell outside of the courthouse. They made t-shirts and underwear to sell that said Manassas, Virginia, a cut above the rest, and boxers that said Manassas, Virginia, don't cut me short. Nothing had happened in Manassas since the Civil War. It literally was the site of several Civil War battles, and that was its claim to fame until John Bobbitt got his penis cut off. The people of Manassas were very excited by everything. It was on every channel. It wasn't just for the tabloids. It was on CNN and primetime TV. Bobbit versus Bobbit. Was John a drunk, a brute, and a batterer who forced sex on his fearful wife so many times she finally snapped? Or was she a calculating jealous woman enraged over unsatisfying sex, alleged infidelity, and threats of divorce who fabricated rape to justify it? That's a quote from a reporter outside of John Bobbitt's trial. It was a circus, and it all came down to who the jurors believed. John's trial was a sexual crime, because he was accused of rape and abuse. And because that was the case, Court TV needed permission to film inside of the courtroom, and they were denied access. So it was not on TV. According to John, he had gone to work that day, but had been told to leave early since it was slow. So he went out to get a few beers with his friend Robbie. He had two beers and two B-52 shots, which are shooters made of Kahlua, Baileys, and Grand Marnier. So according to him, low alcohol candy shots. He was barely feeling buzzed when he went home. He was just tired. He even folded his clothes that night. So that was his way of saying, I was not drunk at all, because could a drunk person do this? From this testimony, John came off as likable to the jurors. And he was an attractive guy, so I'm sure that only helped him, because attractive people can't do bad things. His attorney argued he was a nice guy, but not the most sensitive lover. He said John didn't force his wife to have sex. She attacked him because she was unsatisfied sexually. 
When it came to Lorena's turn, she tearfully told her side of the story in court as well. However, the jurors could only consider the night in question. The judge ruled that only incidents within five days of Lorena's action could be admissible. They couldn't consider anything she did after or anything that had happened before. If he was going to be convicted, it was going to be because of what he allegedly did on June 23rd. Isn't that insane? This case is about spousal rape and abuse, which is something that would, of course, happen over such a lengthy period of time, which is what Lorena has said time and time again. And yet this judge is saying the only time period we are allowed to talk about in court and take into consideration is the span of five days, which makes absolutely no sense in my mind. That is so messed up. How can you not talk about the history of abuse when you're talking about an abuse case? That's just so unfair. She told the courtroom that John said to her that forced sex excited him. Because she was only allowed to share five days worth of time, she did say they had consensual sex on one of those days. And when she was asked why... She answered because she was afraid if she didn't, he would just rape her anyways. So that doesn't sound very consensual to me. And it's also incredibly interesting how jury perception plays such a big role. The jury was confused by Lorena because half of the time she would wear a little housewife dress and look meek and sad. And the other half of the time she would be done up with makeup and she would want to come off as a strong woman. And they just weren't sure what to make of her, which kind of made her come off as untrustworthy. They didn't know how to take it. The doctor who examined Lorena was put on the stand and said he saw no outward physical signs of rape, nor did she show mental signs of a victim. Another forensic scientist got on the stand and said the underwear she was wearing had been cut with scissors and not just torn. And the only way to replicate the underwear had been torn was to make a small cut with scissors and then tear the rest of the way. Some of the jurors were convinced by this, but the others thought with all the other abuse that she had talked about, why would she lie about her underwear? But Greg Murphy, John's defense attorney, said after leaving her apartment that night, she went to her nail salon where they have a bunch of scissors which would explain the potential cut in the underwear. So that was his explanation, which is a bunch of baloney, in my opinion. After four hours of deliberation, the jury found John Bobbitt not guilty. They weren't allowed to talk about the days before or the days after. And because of the incident that occurred, one of the jurors said they just got sidetracked with that and they lost sight of what he was really on trial for. So he was found not guilty. And that sucked because the media did not let up on any of this. And after John was acquitted, it really only got worse for Lorena. There was no focus on the abuse she sustained because now he was innocent. The public was really only hearing one side. Lorena knew she needed a really good attorney for her trial, which is when she hired Blair Howard. To Howard, there was no doubt in his mind Lorena was being genuine in her story of what happened. But what was most important now was getting proof and confirmation that he had abused her. She was charged with malicious wounding with a seven-inch blade. 
But if there was evidence that there was abuse happening with some regularity, then her story became much more believable to a jury. So that's what they needed to find. Directly after John's trial, he was instructed by his team to get as far away from Manassas as possible. Everyone wanted an interview, but his attorney told him to stay out of it until after Lorena's trial. So he went and lived on a ranch in Colorado Springs where no one could find him. But that only lasted a few months because John couldn't help himself. He just loved the spotlight. There was a John Wayne Bobbitt look-alike contest at a Hooters in Colorado Springs, and he wanted to enter. The whole point of him being out there was so that no one knew where he was, but he wanted people to know where he was. Right before Lorena's trial began, Howard Stern had a Miss New Year's Eve pageant where he had a telethon to raise money for John Wayne Bobbitt's penis, and John, of course, was invited, and they had this gigantic penis meter and a topless woman who stood next to it as it went up every single time they raised more money. I mean, these were the kinds of things John was doing. It makes me sick to think about. He was getting invited on radio shows and television shows and concerts and, like, wet t-shirt contests, I'm pretty sure. Like, he was just everywhere and doing everything because he just loved being a celebrity. And just like the people of Manassas, John wanted to capitalize off of the spectacle, so he made merch. He made shirts that he sold that said, Severed Part on the front with like a woman holding a knife on the front and and the back said love hurts he sold those and would autograph them while he was on tour doing these radio and tv interviews and while john was having a grand old time doing whatever he wanted to lorena was tormented by constant jokes and judgment she was called a hot-blooded latina woman they had sketches about her on TV shows. David Letterman was calling Lorena his girlfriend. She hated every second of it. She felt like she was in physical pain during that time. She was so wildly depressed with everything going on. It was the holiday season. She was staying at Jana's home, but she couldn't even pull herself off the couch. She felt like her whole world was crumbling down. Her trial was set to begin in January. Her team felt like John's trial had been the dress rehearsal for Lorena's trial. For John's trial, Court TV wasn't allowed in the courtroom, but for whatever reason, Lorena's case wasn't considered a sex crime, even though it was an alleged rape and she cut off his penis. But somehow, they finagled their way in there. Her defense team would be Blair Howard, Jim Lowe, and Lisa Kemmler, and they would be going up against Mary Grace O'Brien and Paul Ebert, who was actually the prosecutor in John's trial, which was kind of odd. He was against John in the first one, and now he was against Lorena. But he apparently was like, it's gonna be fine. I'm looking at it as the state against John and the state against Lorena, not Lorena against John and John against Lorena. So he was like, it's fine. Kind of weird, but that's what happened. But the defense knew they were going to have to put up a good fight. The prosecution was a highly respected team. And going in, it was expected for the defense to be a temporary insanity or irresistible impulse plea, which is a very difficult thing to prove. 
The years of physical and sexual abuse put her over the edge, and that night was the trigger. If she was found guilty of malicious wounding, she was facing 20 years in prison. About three to five days before the trial began, the prosecutors offered Lorena a plea bargain. Rather than going through the whole messy trial, they offered Lorena four months in jail for admitting this was a premeditated attack. Now, I don't know what I would do in this situation, because this sounds like a pretty good plea bargain to me. This would be a very difficult decision. But for Lorena, this was almost a no-brainer, because if she submitted to a felony, there would be zero chance of her becoming an American citizen. And it had always been her dream to be an American citizen. So she decided that she would risk 20 years in prison for that right. So that was it. Her trial was set to begin. She said, I'm no failure. That's not what I want. She decided she would risk everything. And Lorena's trial is exactly where we will begin in part two. What an impossible situation to be put in. You know, a plea deal of four months in jail to say it was a premeditated attack instead of going through the entire messy trial and potentially risking a 20-year prison sentence. And they're going into it with the insanity plea. I mean, that was her defense. That's going to be her defense. And that's an insanely difficult defense to take. Even now, that's almost an impossible defense to prove. But imagine in 1994, I mean, the misogyny. And for her defense to be insanity because of domestic violence was a big risk. And what she did because of that domestic violence and insanity was cut off her husband's penis was a really, really, really big risk. If one of those men who was outraged and like horrified and angry and wanted revenge, basically was on the jury, then that would be really bad for her. And that was like a risk she was taking, all to be an American citizen. That's really brave. That's just a really brave choice that she made. And also, all of the things that John did are just, like, mind-numbing. Like, oh my god. And that's not even all of them. Like, the things that he did in between his case and Lorena's were bad enough, but the things that he does after Lorena's, too are even worse. Like, we'll talk about that. We're going to talk about, you know, Lorena's trial and the aftermath of that in part two. And I mean, if you thought part one was insane, I mean, just wait for part two. It gets, it gets crazier. Like, oh my God. I had heard about this case before, but honestly, I had forgotten about it. Like, it was really just off my radar. And then I stumbled across it and it's just a very interesting case to look at. Also, what a ridiculous scene to think about, just like 10 to 15 police officers searching around a grassy field up to like their thighs, searching for a severed penis, and they find it when someone steps on it. How ridiculous. That sounds like a... I understand why so many comedians ran with this, because honestly, that just sounds fake. But it's not. That's real life. Sometimes reality is just more ridiculous than fiction. And that's just the world we live in. But hey, anyway, we're not going to be slowing down in part two. So that's that on that. 
But let's talk about the good thing. My good thing is that I am finally getting out of jet lag. I have been so jet lagged the, the past few days. It's like an eight hour time difference from LA to Dublin. And uh, it, it's definitely a smoother transition from when I flew to Dublin because there was like a good two to three day period where I like just straight up didn't sleep. I laid in bed and stared at the ceiling for the entire night and then just had to function the next day because I was in Dublin and didn't want to miss out on the fun. Um, so it's definitely better than that this time around. But yeah, I'm, I'm getting out of the, the sleepiness, which is good. Jet lag is a, is a biatch. So I'm feeling glad. <laughs> that I'm getting back into my normal sleep schedule because sleep is important. Um, but anyway, I'll just leave it there. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you would like to look at all the pictures we post of all the stories we talk about, check us out on Instagram at nottoday underscore podcast. If you would like to check out that bonus episode, check us out over on Patreon at patreon.com slash nottodaypodcast. If you or anyone you know has a story of survival or something crazy that you would like to share with us and possibly hear on an upcoming listeners episode, send it to nottodaypodcast at gmail.com. We have a TikTok that is not today podcast and a Twitter that is not today podcast, but the T on the end of podcast is a three because that makes sense. And... Just keep breathing. Yeah.